is flow freely, unchecked and uninterrupted by any satanic or demonic force. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed speak to my vocal cords, think to my mind, none of me and all of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Lord, we pray for the gifts of the Spirit to be in operation and manifestation. Pray for articulation of your heart. Thank you, Lord, in advance for everything that you'll do on this evening. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the teacher and you are the guide. And so we just lean on you to live big on the inside tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. So me this confession of our faith. Say, Father, I've come to receive revelation, wisdom, and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on a daily basis. I'm a doer of the word and not a hearer only. I'm a fruitful believer. Amen. Amen. Well, all righty. So, as I said just a second ago, for the month of March, we are reading through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. So, I'll make some commentary in regards to that just here shortly. Um, well, in fact, I know I said start in Luke, but let's look, if you will, at Genesis chapter number 15. Genesis chapter number 15. And we're going to kind of link all of these areas together. Uh, momentarily. Genesis chapter number 15. Genesis chapter number 15. Because if you're going to study the book of Exodus, you need to understand uh, there are some things that God said to Abraham or Abram at this point in time concerning what happens in the book of Exodus so that none of this stuff was necessarily a surprise per se. Genesis chapter 15. Do you have it? Um, look at verse number 13. This is after the cutting of the covenant. Um, and uh, Abram decides to believe God despite what he sees. So God says, all right, I can use this kind of man. He counts it as righteousness according to verse number six. And he believed in the Lord. and It was counted to him as righteousness. And then in this process, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And God says something to him while he is having this area of sleep. One indicates to us is you see a deep sleep in verse number 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. In other words, a darkness came upon him because he fell asleep because of cutting the covenant. And in this dream, God does speak a prophetic word to Abram. Notice what he says. He says, and he said unto Abram, know of a certainty that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve, will I judge? And afterwards, notice he says, they shall come out with great substance. Great substance. I, I always look at this, and then there's a correlation with this over in the book of Exodus, that righteousness, when you release your slaves, or when they leave, there is this thing called recompense. There is this thing called reparations. It is a scriptural thing to have reparation. You don't just free people when they get nothing. So in Genesis chapter number 15, this is what the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, listen, your descendants are going to be enslaved for about 400 years. There's going to be an oppression. But notice this. He also says, I'm going to judge that nation for what they do to your people or your seed. So that's another thing we can understand is that God always has judgment for those that mistreat his children. We don't have to do things and get back with them and do any of those kind of things because of the fact God is a righteous judge and he will judge those accurately, appropriately in regards to how they dealt with his people. Okay. Number two, we see in this, he says, when they come out, they're not going to come out broke, busted or disgusted but they're gonna come out with great substance. And I submit to you in so many different ways, the judgment of the Lord may still be on a nation if the nation does not deal right where they have treated a group of people wrong. 
it might be something that if it's never addressed or if it's never properly healed, that's the reason why it keeps circulating and coming back up. Because if you do not fix it the correct way, then the righteous God says, when judgment comes, I have to judge in accordance to what you actually did. Maybe that's what we have happening in cycles here in this country of America. Just saying as we start tonight with something that was not planned. All right. <clears throat> well, you know, here, you know, we, we celebrate black history all the time, not just the 28 days of February. Amen. Not we are not that we are an exclusive church or anything of those nature, but uh, we do want to teach the word and teach things, I believe, with accuracy. All right. Now, we've been talking for the last little while concerning this area of remaining focus. Yes. And so we've looked at, if you would, at the areas of our what we discovered as our foundational scripture, which is Second Corinthians chapter four and verse number eight says we are troubled on every side. Yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. So we have within this two states. The reality of where you could be, but the reality where you can be spiritually at the time of this contradiction. That you can be surrounded and troubled and pressed but not crushed. You can be perplexed, i.e., I don't see a way out, but I'm not in despair. I'm not without hope. I can be persecuted, but I can also at the same time be in the state of knowing I'm not forsaken. I can be cast down or knocked down, but know for certain I'm not going to be destroyed. Why is this the case? We've said that before. Paul says, I from inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have in the same spirit of faith, verse 13, according as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. And then he goes on to say, for these light afflictions, verse number 17, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so from this, we begin looking at this area of what does it mean to stay focused? We said in order to stay focused, we understand the definition of the word focus means an adjustment for distinct vision or distant vision, if you will. It is permitting clear understanding, permitting clear um, um perception. That's what it means to stay focused. That when I am looking at something, I am permitting myself to see things as God, in fact, wants me to see it, to see it clearly. My perception is accurate. I'm not limited to the limitations I see. I am serving a limitless God, and the more I focus in on what he said, I know that the current circumstances, even though they might be an issue, God's word overrides the current situation. This is a temporal situation, but what God said is eternal. And if I stay focused on what he said, what I see will shift to what he said. And it's just a matter of time. To focus also, we've said, means to have direct attention. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Lest uh, Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are now ignorant of his devices. And so we begin talking about the device that he uses within the life of the believer, within this topic, is this area of distractions. Yes? We've defined distractions is a thing that prevents someone from concentrating. A thing that prevents someone from concentrating. It is a disturbance. It is an interference. It is an interruption. It is a diversion, a preoccupation. And so we've said that our definition that we're using to centralize this thought, it is a thing that is designed to refocus you away from your mission and your assignment. And so from this, we have looked at these, what started out at six is now at 10 types of distractions, 10 types of distractions. And we've been looking through the scriptures 
and placing these areas together and in our understanding so that when these distractions show up within our lives, we can recognize them and not fall prey to them. The first one we've said is number one. Mm-hmm. That's not number one, but <laughs> amen. Seemingly positive attention grabbers, yes, or getters. And we said that God's solution for these seemingly positive attention grabbers is, mm-hmm. see, this is, this is midweek. <laughs> this, is, this is midweek. Mm-hmm. Ain't on the board. <laughs> see where we are. Discipline, self-control, self-control or discipline. God's solution for the seemingly positive attention grabbers, if you will, is discipline or self-control, which is something that he gives you as a fruit of the spirit. It's not something that, that's just going to happen or drop on you. You're going to have to employ some self-control, right? Number two, we said was agitation, something that's causing you to feel disturbed. And we've indicated to you that God's solution for agitation is his peace. Amen. Now we're starting to cook with some more. <laughs> All right. Number three, we said, is annoyances and irritations. Annoyances or irritations, something that makes you a little annoyed or a little angry, if you will. Something that is causing you to be exacerbated or frustrated or to wear you out. And we said God's solution for these areas of annoyances and irritation is deal with the root and not the fruit. Number four we've indicated to you is panic. Panic, something that is, in fact, a sudden uncontrollable fear or an anxiety something that shows up suddenly. And we said that God's solution for this particular area of panic is good old-fashioned faith. I choose to believe. I choose to believe. I'm not going to be worried about tomorrow. This is what Jesus tells us over in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 34. Essentially, tomorrow got his own worries. And one of the things that the devil does within the life of the believer is is he say, all right, yeah, you good today, but what about tomorrow? <laughs> what are what, what you going to do tomorrow? Well, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow, but today is good, right? Today is good. And if God got me today, you know, this is the concept that you will see within Exodus. It's the mammon concept. It's where God says, I'm going to give you daily bread, which means it's enough to sustain you for right now. And you got to trust him to take care of you tomorrow. And one of the things about mammon was you couldn't store it up. Because it would, it would be, it would go bad. Uh, I think it said worms and all that would get into the mammon if you tried to store it up. Because evidently, some of the Israelites said, "I just get the Lord don't show up tomorrow. I'll put some of this over here in the booth in the back of the corner." And there's always an issue where you try to store up something that God says this is just a provision for the season that you're in right now. You can't cows here. You can't stay here forever. This is just the daily provisions because there really is a time in your life where you go from just daily bread to abundant substance. Amen. Number five, we said, is this area of stress, positive and even negative, positive and even negative. We've indicated to you that stress is something that we have to monitor within our lives. Not just the negative stress. We understand that aspect. But for folks that are not lazy folks, even the positive stress, the the ability to say, no, I can't do this, to monitor or manage what you can and cannot handle is important. God's solution for stress, we've said, is to have a routine connection, habitual or customary connection to him, the needful thing. It's not a Sunday thing, but it's a normal normative thing that we do that we spend time with God so that he can refresh us because you will not always get a chance to go to Aruba every two weeks. You will not always get a chance to sit up with your feet up every three weeks. 
but monitoring the fact that, yeah, these pressures, these issues, these things that you have going on in your life, I got to monitor where I am. Am I connected to the God that will refresh me? I can never be so busy that I don't have enough time to spend with Jesus. Amen. Number six we've indicated to you was boredom, a distraction designed to attack diligence, a distraction designed to attack diligence. And that leaves us with tonight's <clears throat> uh, tonight's teaching, which is on this area of the seventh area of distractions, which is speed. The seventh area of distractions is this area of speed, perceived acceleration to a desired goal. Perceived acceleration to a desired goal. This does not often seem like a distraction, but in fact it is. It is where you see an opportunity to accelerate quicker it's where there is a pathway that you see that is that you're like, man, if I just go this way, I can reach a desired goal. It can even be something that you feel is that something that God called you to, a vision that you have. But this is a distraction, and we're going to show you this as we continue tonight. It is perceived acceleration to a desired goal. Luke chapter number four, do you have it? Yes? No? <laughs> Luke chapter number four. I'm going to read this out of the King James Version, and uh, I'll let you know when we flip over to <clears throat> different versions in just a moment. Luke chapter number four. Let's look once again at verse number five. We looked at this to some degree on last week, but let's home in on a particular area here. Have it? Verse 5 says, And the devil taking him up to a high and high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now we understand that the mission, the assignment that Jesus had was to seek and save those that are lost, right? They ultimately down the cross for our sins. Before all of that, in this first area of temptation, being in the wilderness, the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time, it says in verse number five. Verse six, and the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me. Where well, when was it delivered unto him? Back in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve turned over the authority and the glory and the power of earth over to this foreign entity within the Garden of Eden. And this is the reason why he says, all of these things have been given to me, all of the power I will give thee and the glory of them. I will deliver unto thee. Notice he says, and to whomever I will give it. Verse seven, if thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. He says, Jesus, I know what you came here for. All of this here can be yours. You ain't got to do all this other stuff. All you got to do is sign on the dotted line and worship me. And he says, all this here will be yours. You know, this is one of the reasons why I don't really like Ponzi schemes. Because at the root of it is, you know, all this will be yours. All you got to do is deposit all this money up front. <laughs> you know? If you give you can be just like me, but it seems to me that I'm giving you the money and I'm getting product. You know, so how is this working? You know, I've seen it. I've seen different Ponzi schemes, different iterations of it from, from makeup to I think the latest one is everybody on the Internet pushing jewelry to other things, you know. And, and the idea is you come by this box and you pay this money for this box. And then you go sell this merchandise. And one of the things I noticed that the people that sell the merchandise never seem to meet with the prosperity of the one that had the box. Because that's not what a Ponzi scheme is designed to do. Jesus is, in this instance, he has a desire to recover the power and the glory of the world, if you will. And the devil says, you don't have to go through all this. 
We can cut the corner if you just worship me. Now, notice how Jesus responds, and this is how we should respond to the devil when he shows up with this distraction of speed. He says, and Jesus said, verse number eight, and answer and said unto him, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written. Now, this is how you deal with the devil. You don't say, get in your flesh. You deal with him with saying what the word says. He says, for it is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thy serve. We need to understand, when you speak to the enemy, you need to know the word. Jesus didn't say, wait a minute, hold up, let me, let me find out. Now, it says something, I heard the pastor say something. Which, which scripture was that? Uh, you're not going to run the devil off like that. Hiding the word in your heart becomes important if you want to walk in authority. Which is the reason why we drill, we drill, we drill, we drill, we drill. And after that, we drill some more. Because speaking to the enemy that's in your house is something that is in your purview and you should do it. Okay? So Jesus deals with this distraction of speed by speaking forth the word. Now, my assignment is to tell you about this area of shortcuts. Shortcuts. Speed is a distraction because it is the temptation to take a shortcut to a desired goal, a shortcut. It is where we say in our community, you know y'all, it don't take all that. You ain't gotta do all that. You really don't take, why are you doing all that? Or they even say, you know, in a negative connotation, girl, you're doing too much because you are pursuing excellence. You are pursuing diligence. It is where we think that we can take a shortcut in order for us to be prosperous. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse number five. Let's look at that. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse number five. I'm going to speed up and slow down just for a moment. <laughs> this is out of the New Living Translation. Proverbs 21 and verse five says, Good planning and hard work leads to prosperity. But... Hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. Hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. You will always lose taking a shortcut. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 12. Now notice out of the message translation. Verse 13 says, rather, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a success life or successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way of life to God is vigorous and requires total attention. Don't fall for shortcuts. What was, what was going on in Genesis chapter number three? You can be just like God. I mean, you don't need God. I got a shortcut. The devil will show up in our lives and say, you don't need to do all that faithfulness stuff. I got a way to get you past all of that to a desired place. Because one of the things we've indicated to you before is that the devil will watch you. He sees where you are going based on how you are practicing areas of diligence, how you're practicing areas of, of seeing where your passion is. And what will happen is he'll say, all right, what we can do, I can just, how about I give it to you right now? And if you're not careful in discerning that this is a distraction, then what you'll do is say, oh, yeah, let's go that way. Exodus chapter number two. Let's integrate some of these areas together. <clears throat> Exodus chapter number two. I want you to notice something and this as we're reading through the book of Exodus. One of the things that you should understand, because it happens pretty rapidly as far as the scriptures are concerned, Exodus chapter 1 begins talking about the fact that the Israelites had been in Egypt for a number of years. The whole generation of the Joseph generation dies. There was an original, I think the scripture says 70 people in verse number 4, uh, that are descendants that came to Egypt. And in a matter of time, and when Joseph dies, 
they begin to grow and expand. But eventually, verse number eight says, out of the New Living Translation, eventually a king, a new king, came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And subsequently, they become afraid of the very people that were a blessing to them. This is what the scripture goes on to say. Because an insecure leader, the problem with this, an insecure leader becomes a very dangerous person. Because they will try to kill the thing that could be the biggest blessing to them. And so it was in the, in the, uh, in the uh, land of Egypt that the very people that had been the blessing to them, when a pharaoh or a leadership moved in position that did not know his history, did not understand the contributions of that same group of people, he turned against the people that were originally a blessing to the nation. And that's the reason why we see in Genesis where God begins to say, all right, there's going to be a season where there's judgment because of the fact God still hasn't forgotten the blessing that was uh, given to Egypt at the hands of his people. All right, side journey. Moses, by the time we get to chapter number three, is 80 years old. He's 80 years old when God calls him back to his purpose. And the scriptures are very distinct in telling us this in various places because he is not by any means or method a young man when he enters into his distinct purpose. But now let's begin here at Genesis, Genesis Exodus chapter number two. And we're going to put some of these areas together. Exodus chapter number two, because if I stay there too long, we won't finish tonight. I love this book and uh, I love the story of Moses. And uh, so let me not just dwell in one spot. Exodus chapter number two. Notice this. The scripture says this out of the New Life version. One day Moses had grown up. He went out. Notice the scripture. He says he went out to his brothers and saw how hard they worked. Now we understand the story of Moses and how the fact the Pharaoh, he sent out a decree to kill all the boys of the nation, right? We remember the story how, uh, how Moses' mother, in fact, in chapter two, it begins, he says that she placed Moses into a basket and he went down the river Nile and then the princess of the nation saw uh, uh, Moses and sent her servant out and picked him up and, and she fell in love with him. And at that time, uh, Miriam, his sister said, hey, you need some help with that baby? <laughs> and, and, and so Moses in a moment's time goes from being down the river, not knowing what's going to happen, to being safely back in the arms of his mother. Now, one of the things that always struck me is verse number nine. The scripture says, take this baby and the nurse him and nurse him. And the princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. She's a slave, but she's getting income to take care of her own baby. You know, God can set you up in such a way that the thing that you would do for free, he'll pay you for. Just in a moment's time, she, see, mama, mama of Moses sent the baby down the river. When the baby came back, he came back with some income. Just, just the side journey once again. I told you, I love this book now. Now, so what we see happening is that Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. So after, I want to say about three months, the scripture says, Moses is returned to Pharaoh's house and he grows up in Pharaoh's house. But Moses is not mistaken in his identity. I'm spending time on this on purpose because have you ever seen like the Prince of Egypt? Seen the Ten Commandments? Both of these movies spend a large time with Moses confused about his identity. And yet none of that's in the scripture. The scripture says in verse number 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his brothers and saw how hard they worked. Well, how do you know they're your brothers, Moses? Because he wasn't confused about his identity. One reason why he wasn't confused about his identity is because we understand that the Egyptians were the sons of Cush, which means they were historically darker skinned. Moses don't look like them. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, everybody looked the same. So there can be some confusion. But if you understand this historically, Moses looks like a Hebrew and the Egyptians look like Egyptians. And there's a distinction. 
It's just like me growing up down the street at some uh, the white brothers and sisters' house. I'm gonna know I'm a little different. This is not gonna be a confusion. It only becomes a blur when we start changing the history to match the culture that we're trying to push forward. Okay? Now why I'm on all this stuff tonight? <laughs> Moses knew who he was. I want to prove this by the scriptures tonight. Turn over, hold your finger there in Exodus, turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, since this is Bible study. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. We see right here in Exodus chapter number two, it says, one day Moses grew up and he went down to look at his brothers and sisters, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, right? As how, and see how hard they work. Notice he says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, scripture says this, it says, because out of the new life uh, version, I'm going to stick with this version right here or this translation, because of faith or the traditional King James says by faith, because of faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months. They saw that he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king when he said that all the boys should be killed. Verse 24, notice this. Because Moses had faith, he wouldn't be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter when he grew up. Because Moses had faith. There came a time in Moses' life said, no, I'm not going to identify myself with Pharaoh's house because that's not who I am. Moses didn't have an identity crisis. He knew who he was. That becomes important when we look at Exodus chapter number two, because Moses and uh, verse number 11, he goes down to look at the hard work of his brothers and sisters. He knew that he grew up in privilege. He knew he was educated. He knew maybe he had a sense of what his purpose was. Now notice as we go back to Exodus chapter two, I said, hold your finger there. Verse 11. Verse 11 says again, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out uh, to his brothers and saw how hard they worked. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Well, how do you know they're your people? Because Moses didn't have an identity crisis, right? Verse number 12, out of the uh, New Life translation or version. So he looked this way and that. And he didn't see anyone. And so he killed the Egyptians and hid him in the sand. So you can get this picture now. Moses is out here looking at his people. And you almost get a sense that Moses is a little radical. He's like, now, nah, mm -hmm. look at it. Are you beating him? So Moses is looking to the left, looking to the right. And he decides, this is my opportunity to do something for my people. Notice this, verse 13. The next day, he went out. And saw that he too, so I'm sorry, verse number 12. So he killed the Egyptians and hid them in the sand. Verse 13. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He said to a man who had, or who, who did the wrong, why are you hitting your neighbor? But the man said, who made you ruler and a judge among us? Do you plan to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? In other words, you know, his brothers, you know, they, they said, who is you? <laughs> now notice this, that Moses was afraid. He thought, for sure, the thing I have done is known. Verse 15, and when Pharaoh heard what had happened, he tried to kill Moses. And Moses ran away from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by the well. So Moses knew who he was. He knew maybe perhaps he had a sense of what he was called to do. The scriptures tells us over in Acts that, um, that he's about 40 years old at this point. He is not a young man. And at the time that he makes his first move to do something, he thinks that his people would embrace him when in fact they're a bunch of tattletales. And Moses being Moses is like, man, look here. My life is in danger. Pharaoh is now trying to kill me. Forget y'all. And he runs out to Midian. And the scripture tells us 
he marries, he has two boys, and I can get the impression that Moses is like, I am done with him. Okay? Tried to help them. They told, forget them. <laughs> Amen? What was Moses doing? He was trying to do something through speed. What maybe Moses thought he, he was, he in fact was. But he thought he could get there overnight when in fact God had a strategic time for him to become everything that was in his heart. Yeah, you can turn that completely off if you want to. So what we see, and we'll see this later on in chapter number three, is that while Moses is a shepherd in the field, like I said, this is, he was 40 when he left. It's been 40 more years, so he has not, these two sons that he had, they're grown. They're not little boys. He has had a nice life with his new wife. Raise his sons. I bet Moses said, this is good for me, I'm retired. <laughs> Living my best life, got some land, the boys are doing well. But one day he looks up and he sees God calling him back to his purpose something burning on a hill. And I submit to you, that's what happens. <laughs> that when you get away from your purpose, God will always send you something that attracts you back to what your purpose is. But it's not in speed. It's not in this acceleration. It is something that takes place in God's divine time. What am I saying tonight? God's solution for this distraction of speed is patience. Patience. This is not a word we like to hear. Patience. But Lord, we can get that faster. No, patience is God's solution for this distraction of speed. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's look there really quick as we get ready to close. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse number 1. God knows what time things are to take place. For Moses, you need to be 80 years old. You need to understand what it's like to shepherd sheep before you get ready to shepherd God's people. You need to know what it's like to have your people reject you because you're going to need to know all these skills when you get ready to walk into your purpose in the wilderness because these folks in the wilderness are going to be like these sheep. They're going to act like fools at times. And you got to know how to deal with them. These people in the wilderness are going to tally tale on you. They're going to they're do all kinds of stuff. And you got to be calm, demeanor. You got to be able to know how to navigate with all of these folks, Moses. And you wouldn't have not had the skill set at 40 that you did have when you were 80. And God knows this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse number 1. He says, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven." God has a purpose for every season and time in your life. And that is something that is easier said and harder to live. The God, you really know what you're doing? Because it don't feel like you do. I can imagine maybe Moses had flashbacks at age, you know, 65, about when he lived back in Egypt. He tried to help them Negroes out, help them folks out. <laughs> And look what happened. And, and, and notice, though, what you'll see as we're reading through the book of Exodus is that when God does call Moses, Moses begins giving God a bunch of excuses. Lord, you know, I'm a stutter. Lord, I got this. Lord, I, you, you know, I'm not good at this. Send somebody else, Lord. In other words, cause when I read that, I see Moses say, I got a good life. I'm good. I'm good. I'm on that. <laughs> he doesn't know I've come down to deliver my people. You know, the same passion you had, now it's time. Something about God waiting until you don't want it no more to say, now is your time. Because when you went in your 40s, 40 years ago, maybe it would have been about you. But now when you go back as an older person, you're going to know it has to be about him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now watch this. <clears throat> We're familiar with this scripture. God has a purpose for every season and every time. 
Notice this, uh, the uh, New Life Translation. I want to read this out of this because I like how it reads this. You have never been tempted to sin in any way different, in a different way uh, than other people. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you can take. But when you are tempted, he will make a way for you to keep you or keep from falling into sin. Now, if you look at that, you're like, well, bless God, I ain't sinning. I'm doing what I need to do. Well, Romans chapter 14 and verse 27 says, anything that's not done by faith is sin. So when I decide that I ain't going to trust God, you ain't sin. It's very simple. Trusting God is not an option for the believer. It is a lifestyle. Believing and walking by faith is a lifestyle. And when I am walking by faith and I don't see a way out, I got to know that God would not have led me this direction without having a life option attached with the direction he sent me. Other scripture, James chapter 1. I'm going to read this out of the voice translation. James chapter 1, verse number 12. It says, happy is the person who can hold up under the trials of life. At the right time, he'll know God's sweet approval and will be crowned with life. As God has promised, the crown awaits all who love him. Verse 13. No one who is tempted should ever be confused and say that God is testing him. The one who created us is free from evil and can't be tempted, so he doesn't tempt. So God is not the one that's tempting you, or God is not the one that's leading you, or in other words, or is, is the one that is the author of the trial. But God will permit the trial or the test within your life because there is something that you gain when you get to the other side. There is something that you gain in the journey. And if you skip the process by this distraction of speed, you are skipping the process that God has intended for you to, for you to be built up for the thing that he's called you to. First Peter chapter one, first Peter chapter one, back in the new life translation. You all right? All right. <laughs> Scripture says this. You are being kept by the power of God because you put trust or put your trust in him. And you will be saved from the punishment of sin at the end of the world. He says, verse six, with this hope, you can be happy even if you need to have sorrow. Even if I'm sorry, you can be happy even if you have even if you even if you need to have sorrow in all kinds of tests. For a while. In other words, he says, you can be happy even in the midst of being in the midst of a trial. Sounds very similar to what Paul says, trouble on every side, but yet. You can have this but yet in your life because of the fact you know about your relationship with God. And you know, verse 7, he says, these tests have come to prove your faith and to show that it is good. Gold, which can, uh, can be destroyed, is tested by fire. So in other words, he says, God permits you to go through tests. God permits you to go through trials because when you get on the other side, it proves just, it proves you in a way just like fire proves gold. When you have an authentic gold vision, you are having to have to go through a trial because your faith has to be proven. You can't get there overnight. He goes on to say, your faith is worth much more than the gold, and it, is, it must be tested also. Then your faith will bring thanks and a shining greatness and honor to Jesus Christ when he comes again. In other words, when your faith goes through the test, when it goes through the trial, when you say, no, I'm not going to try to do things through speed, but I'm going to take God's journey, then God says, when you take my journey, when you get to the desired destination, you will have a golden faith to go with the vision that he showed you. That's the reason why, Moses, you can't do it 
at 65. That's why you can't do it at 50. Because God says there's something that has to be proven in you so that when you go back to your assignment, then you go with a different personality. You go with a different mentality and a different spirit for the assignment. You would have cut all them off at 40. But at 80, you're like, Lord, don't, don't kill your people. These prayers that Moses prays are amazing in the book of Exodus. Say, God, this wouldn't be right for you to, to take us out into the wilderness and you just strike them all down. That's not right, Lord. But at 40, he would say, yeah, kill them all. Kill them all, all of them. All of them got to go. <clears throat> James chapter 1 and uh, verse number 4. As we're familiar with it, it says, but let patience... Verse 3 says, knowing this, he said in verse 2, my brother, count all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, work of patience or endurance. He says, but let patience have a perfect work, letting us know that patience does have a work on the inside of you. Patience does have a work. That ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We don't like to hear about patience. Don't nobody want to hear about that. What you mean? I want it now. Let's build it now. We write stories about businesses that blew up. We oftentimes don't write about the ones that, that blew up and then there was a second blow up when they fell apart and collapsed. There's something about not falling prey to the distraction to speed things up. This is wrong close for the sake of time. Five things I must learn to be good with. Five things I must learn. I got to learn this, that I got to be good with these areas. Number one, God has a purpose for my journey. Waiting time is never wasted time. God has a purpose for my journey, right? Number two, God is not just, or God is just as interested in my journey as my destination. God is just as interested in my journey as my destination. Now, we, we, we like the destination part. Yes, we do. We preach sermons about it. We talk about it. We have vision boards. But God is not just interested in where you are going. He's interested in how you got there. Number three, five things I must learn to be good with. Stretching is intended to develop me, not kill me. Stretching is intended to develop me and not kill me. God does not lead you to failure. If I am going this journey and I'm in the midst of a trial, I'm in the midst of an issue, there has to be a life option attached to a permitted trial. And since there has to be a life option attached to a permitted trial, then God did not lead me out here to fail. I might feel like I'm failing. I might feel like it ain't going to work. That is to feel perplexed, like there is no way out. But I know that there has to be a way out or he would not have led me here. Stretching is intended to develop me. God didn't call me out here in the wilderness to kill me. Number four, five things I must learn to be good with. Trusting God means trusting his directions and his directives. His directions and his directives, his plans and his methods. Some of us like his plans, but his methods, no, not so much. <laughs> Why we got to go this way, Jesus? What was going on? Sound just like the children of Israel out in the wilderness, always murmuring and complaining. And God says, I can't use you as long as you can keep murmuring and complaining. Proverbs 3 and verse 5, out of the uh, voice translation, says, place your trust in the eternal. Rely on him completely. Never depend upon your own ideas and inventions. Never depend on your own ideas or inventions. This is out of the voice translation. We all know the traditional King James. Fifth thing I need to learn to be good with. Things I need to know. I need to know this. And I can, I can learn to get to the point where I'm just good with this. Number five, there is no such thing as faith without questions. There is no such thing as walking by faith without having questions. Where are we going? Trust me. How are we going to get there? Trust me. Are we there yet? 
Now, when we say that, too, and, and we sound like that, we sound just like the kids that, you know, in the back. Oh, are we there yet, God? <laughs> Lord, it, it, we, we, we've been out here for a while. Trust me. Because what we're really articulating is, God, I don't really trust you yet. There is, <laughs> there is no such thing as faith without questions. Getting to the point where I say, God, I, yeah, I, I trust you. When God says, all right, keep going this way, and he don't say nothing else to you. He's trying to see, are you faithful? Are you going to despise small beginnings? Or can you be trusted with the last thing he told you? Because if you don't say nothing else, it's because you don't need to know nothing else right now. Stick to what he last told you to do, even while you got the question. What are we doing? How are we going to do this? How is this going to happen? I don't know none of that. All I do know is we're going to keep showing up doing what we know to do. Hebrews 11 and verse number 1. I have a voice translation. We know the King James Version. But the voice translation says it like this. Faith is the assurance of things you have hope for. The absolute conviction that there are realities you've never seen. The conviction that there are realities you've never seen. If I've never seen it, that means I'm going to have some questions. God, you're telling me to believe something I can't put my senses on. And so naturally, if I can't touch it with my senses, that means I'm going to have questions. And God says, I need you to suppress the questions and I want you to elevate the trust. Trust me. But Lord, What's going on? <laughs> Trust me. Lord, how are we going to pay for that? Trust me. Lord, how are we going to? Trust me. Do what you've last been called to do. Because once again, like we said, number one, God has a purpose for your journey. And I have to make a decision that I'm not going to be distracted by the temptation to speed this thing up because when you speed this thing up, what's happening is you are dependent on your own ideas and your own inventions. And when you depend on your own ideas and your own inventions, you are responsible for the results you get. When you depend on God, then God is responsible for the journey. He's responsible for you arriving at the destination. Y'all with me? Yes, sir. All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and we praise you for this opportunity to have gotten into this word tonight. Lord, we thank you that we trust your directions. We trust your journey. We trust, Lord, that you know what you're doing. And so, Lord, we will not be distracted even by things that are showing up in our lives that say, hey, you can be sped up this way. We'll not be uh, lured in by things that will ruin our credit, God, because of speed. When we understand that a faithful man will abound with the blessing. We thank you, Lord, that we will choose as an act of our will to concentrate on the daily bread, the daily word that you give us instead of being allured away by other things. And so we thank you in advance, Lord, that as we have yielded lives daily, Lord, show us the next step. Show us how to be faithful in the things that you set our hands to do right now. Show us how to maximize on the step that we have. Give us witty ideas so that we can be the best at where we are and we can be prepared for elevation. We give you praise for everything in advance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Well, we'll see you on Sunday. Amen. Praise the Lord.